Hello and welcome back to episode two in our Pedra points of discussion about Spitz Nevi. To monitor or excise, that is the question. This points of discussion podcast is brought to you by Pedra's Skin Tumors and Reactions to Cancer Therapies Focus Study Group. In episode one, the group attempted to untangle the complicated nomenclature when discussing Nevi. In episode two, they'll dive in to the details surrounding genetics and excision. Now, a couple of disclaimers before we get started. It's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance or the program presenters. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA or its program presenters and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. I am delighted to welcome back your moderators for today's discussion, Dr. Steve Humphrey and Dr. Val Carlberg. Dr. Humphrey is the Associate Professor of Dermatology and Pediatrics at the Medical College of Wisconsin and Children's Wisconsin. And Dr. Valerie Carlberg is the Associate Professor of Dermatology and Pediatrics at Medical College of Wisconsin and Children's Wisconsin as well. I'd also like to welcome back our speakers, Dr. Pedram Garami, Professor of Dermatology, Pathology, and Pediatrics at Northwestern University, and Dr. Kristen Barebi. She is the Assistant Professor and Pediatric Dermatologist at the University of Iowa. And in one last bit of housekeeping business, I would like to invite our presenters to state any disclosures that may be relevant to this discussion. Hi, I'm Steve Humphrey, and my disclosures are um, some grant and funding research uh, for my institution through Celgene, um, Insight, Pfizer. I've also received fees for Data Safety Monitoring Board for Novan, and have been uh, gotten on, or have had honoraria from El Sevier, um, Incorporated. I'm Dr. Valerie Curl and I have no disclosures. I'm Dr. Kristen Barevi, and I have no disclosures. Uh, my name is uh, Padram Garami. I have done some consulting work for Castle Biosciences, but it's none of it is relevant to um, the current uh, discussion. And now I would like to turn it over to Dr. Humphrey and Dr. Carlberg. Thanks so much, Jen. And thank you for joining us for our second podcast on spitzoid neoplasms. Uh, during our first episode, we talked about the background of spitz nevi and spitzoid neoplasms. Uh, and we also talked about kind of monitoring versus when we start to think about excision. Um, today, we're going to talk a little bit more about when we excise kind of next steps, introduce uh, further the role for uh, genetics with spitzoid neoplasms. Uh, and back with us today are Drs. Carlberg, Dr. Brebby, and Dr. Garami. Thank you all for uh, being back today. I know in our last episode, we touched a little bit about um, when we would think about um, monitoring versus excision. Um, and, you know, when we decide to biopsy or remove a lesion, um, uh, Dr. Brevy, could you kind of go back to some of those clinical features again that would kind of make you most concerned? Like, I think this needs to come off today or very soon. Uh, so the features that give me the most cause for clinical concern are uh, a growth that is rapidly changing in the course of days to months, something that is bleeding spontaneously or crusting or scabbing, something that is itching or painful to a child. That That's helpful to, as we think about it. 
So I'm going to ask the question. It might be a bit of a, a hot take. Why not just take off all anything you think that's spitzoid? Well, that used to be the practice, that's for sure, um, to remove all of them. And my goodness, uh, we would potentially be demoling a lot of kids, which I know happens in some adults, but we like to try and avoid uh, that in both adults and, <laughs> and kids. Um, so yeah, in terms of removing all of them, you know, fortunately, we have some evidence now to show that these benign spits nevi, they do not generally evolve into anything as long as they're behaving the way that they should, that they're not, they don't have any of these clinical features that we just discussed. They don't have the rapid growth, the change, the evolution, the friability, um, the pain or the itch. Um, so I would say that you would potentially cause a lot of morbidity and not a whole lot of benefit to a child if you took off every spitzoid looking thing on their skin. And certainly there's always the risk of traumatizing a child to the dermatologist as well. If every time they come to the dermatologist, they're having to get something removed potentially. So the argument is we don't want to remove things that we don't have to in children um, or adults, but especially in children and cause unnecessary morbidity. As a pediatric dermatologist, I, I wholeheartedly support that and agree with that try to cause as minimal, sometimes just walking through the doors, enough uh, pain and anguish for a lot of our patient population. We try to keep them happy, but uh, yes. <laughs> um, I'm going to turn over to Val. I know she's got some follow-up questions about uh, genetics for Dr. Garami. So Val, take it away. Yes. Thanks, Steve. Dr. Garami, can you discuss when you might consider further workup of a, of a lesion that has been biopsied in terms of differentiating between an atypical Spitz tumor, Spitzoid melanoma um, histologically? So when I use genomic for spitzoid lesions or spitz lesions, there's basically, I would say, two different indications and two different, so two different reasons why I would be doing that. So the first would be if I want to know the driver. If I want to establish, is this lesion truly in the spitz family or is it just spitzoid, as we discussed in the previous podcast, meaning Yes, there might be some morphologic features that make it look like a spitz, but it may not truly be a spitz. It may be a lesion that does not meet genomic definition of, of a spitz. And so, and that makes a big difference um, because, as I said, I'm going to judge those lesions different. My morphologic criteria for what I think is atypical or malignant is going to be different if, it's, if it has a true spitz fusion or an HRAS mutation, as opposed to if it's BRAF or NRAS mutated. So that's the first indication. And I do that sequencing to find the driver. I do that probably more in adults, because if the lesion is seen in a pediatric patient, and the morphology is relatively convincing of spitzoid morphology, then I have found through some studies I've done that the probability of it being a true spitz is, is pretty good. On the other hand, in an adult patient, if the morphology is even slightly less than optimal, it's just maybe partially spitzy, but there's other parts of it that aren't as convincing. And so there's more uncertainty. As the age goes up, the probability that it's not a spitz becomes higher and the likelihood that I'll want to sequence to find, you know, what the, what the driver is, is higher. 
Now, that being said, there there are some cases in kids as well, though, where I still, even though the, the patient is a pediatric patient, I'm just not completely sure if the lesion belongs in the Spitz family or not. If the lesion is a pediatric case, has Camino bodies, has very convincing Spitzoid cytology, for sure I don't need to do any sequencing to de- determine the driver. But if the histology is less than convincing, it's only possibly a spitz, then that's when I would do that type of genomic testing. Then the second indication or the second part of it is, okay, once I've established whether it is or is not in the spitz family, then I may want to determine how far along has it progressed. And probably the most specific testing that we have now, which seems to be a common last step for things to become transformed, is the presence of TERP promoter mutations. Uh, What we know is that the vast majority of melanomas do have genomic modification of TERT, um, which allows the tumor to become immortalized. And mostly that's through missense mutations, but occasionally can be through a genomic rearrangement. And so if I think that once I've established the driver, Uh, and I'm concerned that maybe it's all the way to melanoma, then what I would do is sequence for TERP promoter mutation. So um, I think those are the two types of major indications for genomic testing. You touched a little bit about um, utilizing some of these tests more so in the adults versus the pediatric patient population. Do you find that there are certain modalities that are more helpful for the pediatric patient? I do use um, a lot of TERP promoter mutational analysis because, as I mentioned, the first part of it, just determining the modus operandi of, of a pathologist looking at these lesions, the first thing they should be doing is determining whether this is truly in the Spitz family or not. You know, and that can be done in most cases for kids just by morphology. So, so that would be the first step. But then TERP promoter mutational analysis, I use it a lot in kids because even if I'm confident it's a spitz or confident it's not a spitz, it can be challenging to know if the lesion is fully transformed or not quite there because there are a lot of just spitz tumors that can have a lot of atypical features. And I'm hesitant to call those cases melanoma uh, without evidence of some genomic transformation, meaning in the sense of TERP promoter mutation. And I can tell you that we sat down at the International Melanoma Pathology Group with 20 people, experts around the world, pathologists. And the question was asked, can can, can everybody bring a bona fide malignant Spitz neoplasm? So genomically verified that it's in the Spitz family, malignant with adverse outcome in a prepubertal kid. And out of 20 pathologists from all over the world, I think we, we had one or two examples. So they're pretty rare. Thank you. That was actually going to be my follow-up question. <laughs> kind of what, um, do we have any outcomes data related to the, the TERP promoter mutations in kids? Um, I'm going to turn it over to Steve again to see if he has some follow-up questions. Dr. Grammy, along with the, the TERP promoter, I, I, you know, I, I realize like a lot of what we are trying to use this for are, you know, these very atypical lesions, neoplasms. 
and I know, in, in, especially in the pediatric population, they're just few and far between. So, I mean, as far as like using some of these, um, you know, genomic analyses, for, especially for like TERP promoters, or if you're looking at, you know, things that we kind of talked a little bit about in episode one, like BRAF, are, are they validated yet in kids or are, do we need more data on that? So we can always use more data. The thing that is challenging about this and what has to be really very carefully thought out about going forward. And I know it becomes frustrating because this thing of understanding spits and their behavior is somewhat of a moving target. So a lot of the lesions that we considered spits in previous studies were probably not true spits. We're probably BRAF or NRAS mutated neoplasms that had a slightly spitzoid cytomorphologic appearance and because they occurred in a pediatric patient, were maybe called a spitz. So we have to be very skeptical, actually, of a lot of the older data. And you can only be apologetic about this, but we really have to reassess almost newly with the new genetic tools that we have. There's very little data, and we need more. What we have, the probably the best data that we have that actually use genomically defined tumors, things that we know are truly spits, probably the data that we have on TERP promoter is probably the best. I was very involved in the development of fish, and I've used a lot of CGH in the past, and I think they have a place, but I think many of the melanomas that they identified may not have even been true, true spits. If we look at some of my more recent data, I found copy number changes in a lot of benign spitz neoplasms. Thank you very much. It kind of led into my next question, actually, which is, is we talk about like some different modalities for working up this. So you get an atypical neoplasm on H&E, you're looking at this, you're thinking about kind of next steps. Is there a, still a role for doing immunohistochemistry do you think about fish still? Do you think about doing CGH? Uh, what's sort of your typical kind of way you start to answer some of those questions? So my very first step, always the first step, is determining whether the lesion really needs to be assessed as a Spitz neoplasm or it maybe doesn't belong in the Spitz family. The younger the patient is, the more confident I can be on that based on morphology alone. Because as I mentioned before, by epidemiology, uh, true spits are just make up a much higher proportion of total melanocytic neoplasms in younger patients, whereas in older patients, you have so many spits mimickers. You don't have as many of those in younger patients. So it, the first thing is deciding whether I can be confident it belongs to the spits family or not. And in most cases, I can make that determination without any molecular, the utility of molecular diagnostics. So if I, if I feel confident that it, it doesn't, it belongs to the Spitz family, we don't need any sequencing then. If um, I think that the morphology is really severely atypically low and melanoma is a possibility, I would typically use TERP promoter mutational analysis if I think the morphology is bordering on melanoma. On the other hand, if uh, I think it, it really is just atypical, but there's really changes that are concerning for malignancy, I, I'm not really thinking of that, then I, I, I typically don't need any, I don't do any genomics at all. 
Do you still do some immunohistochemistry staining, like say looking uh, to see if there's like a positive BRAF because that could tell you it's not a spitz. Is that sometimes helpful for lesions or what's the rule that's, for IHC? That's a, that's a great question. And yes, BRAF IHC is actually my most used IHC marker for, for, this, for that assessment. And if I can do that and show that it's BRAF positive, then I know already right away that answers the first question that this does not belong to the Spitz family. And that, that makes it much easier. And so that's, that's actually my number one used IHC marker. Uh, conversely, I honestly, I have to say, I, when it comes to the question of, of ancillary studies and, um, and Spitz and, and IHC, I do very little of the other IHC. Um, KI-67 spits can be very proliferative, uh, sometimes much more proliferative than melanoma. So I don't find it to be super helpful. HMB-45 spits are sometimes HMB-45 positive. So again, I, I don't find it very helpful. And when sometimes I receive the criticism that, oh, the molecular tests you do are very expensive, I sometimes receive consultations with 10 IHC stains on a spits and still there's complete uncertainty of the diagnosis. Conversely, I often feel like one molecular test and I feel very strongly that I've definitively solved the, the, the dilemma. So I think that's something that needs to be considered. How do you detect when you're talking, I know you had mentioned in episode one talking about alk fusions. How do you det like detect fusions? Is that through fish? Is that through deep sequencing? There are some IHC markers that can be helpful. The other IHC markers for the other comments are not as reliable, such as Ross, RET. But the correlation with the fusion is not as tight as it is with ALK. So if, if it has morphologic features that are typical of an ALK fusion, which are elongated wavy fascicles of spindle cells, um, commonly high mitotic count and a very eruptive appearance, I will sometimes start with that. But if I look at the morphology and I think like, oh, this is not an ALK or this is not a, one of the fusions that I could necessarily approach with an IHC method, then I typically use a fusion plex panel, which is just like uh, a targeted panel, which sequences for fusions from a genomic list. But there's different panels that could be utilized. There's not just one option. I think what's important is basically, you know, the ins and out of the panels that you're using, and you know, the limitations, you know, what can be detected with that panel and what's not going to be detected. And, and so there's not just one genomic panel, but I, I typically what we have at Northwestern is a targeted panel for about a, 150 different possible fusions. And if I'm suspecting a, a fusion, I'll usually start with that. I find the most useful immunohistochemical marker in my practice when I'm assessing these lesions is BRAF IHC. That's the most common IHC marker that I use. As you alluded to in your question, if we can show that it's BRAF V600E mutated or positive by that IHC, then we can essentially exclude this lesion from the Spitz family, and we would use different criteria to assess it. On the other hand, if it's negative, you don't know. And so you may need to progress to other 
tests. I don't use a lot of the other IHC like HMB45 because spits can be HMB45 positive. I don't find it very helpful. I don't find KI67 very helpful because spits can be super proliferative. I've seen some alkmut fusions that have like 10 mitoses per millimeter squared. So when you do a KI67, it's going to light up. Actually, I find quite a limited role for IHC, to be honest. I, I, I don't use it as much. And then just to follow up on that, for fusions, is there a IHC that you can do? That was the part I think that cut out. So is there IHC that can be done to look for fusions or do you have to do yes. dish for that? Right, right. So, so there, there are some IHCs that are available that can help in assessing whether there's a fusion there. The best one is ALK IHC, which has a tight correlation with the presence of um, an ALK fusion. It's not 100%, um, but it's pretty high. There is certain types of other... Um, there's this alternative ALK transcript, which is a possibility in some melanomas, which will also be IHC positive, but that's not very common. So pretty much if it's spitzoid appearing and it's ALK positive, very high probability of an ALK fusion. So I use that if the features are typical of an ALK fusion, like wavy fascicles of spindle cells, high proliferative activity, kind of a wedge shape typically. Um, but if I think it's a different type of fusion, for example, RET, ROS, or N-TRAC fusion, sometimes using IHC is not as, the connection of the positive staining is not as strong with the presence of, of the fusion. The next best one after ALK is probably N-TRAC. I have a pan, there is a pan N-TRAC IHC stain, which can be utilized. And if it's positive, that can lean you towards the possibility of, uh, of an N-TRAC fusion, but it's not a perfect correlation. I'm going to turn over to Val just for the end of episode two here. Val, take it away. I want to thank you, Drs. Kurlberg, Barabi, and Grami for your expertise and insight today as we ventured um, into this topic further on spitzoid neoplasm. So please join us for episode three, where we will continue on our journey into the role of genetics in spitzoid nevi and how they may influence the clinical decision-making and talk about the future. Thank you so much for listening to episode two in our three-part points of discussion series about Spitz Nevi. Thank you so much to our moderators, Dr. Steve Humphrey and Dr. Val Carlberg, and of course to our guests, Dr. Pedram Garami and Dr. Kristen Barebi. Stay tuned for our third and final episode as the group discusses the future of Spitz Nevi research. Pedra's Points of Discussion program is funded by Orthodermatologics and Insight Pharmaceutical Company. We thank them for their support of this independent medical education program. Pedra is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. To learn more, visit our website at www.pedraresearch.org. Make sure that you subscribe to our Pedra Pearls podcast channel in iTunes, Google, and Spotify so you never miss an episode. And follow us on social media at Pedra Research. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back for episode three.